Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. Support for today's episode comes from Ruby Receptionists. Ruby's live, remote receptionists and proprietary technology are your solution to delivering excellent customer service experiences by answering calls in English or Spanish, transferring calls, taking messages, addressing common questions, and making outbound calls for you. Most importantly, they sound like they're sitting in your office. To learn more, visit callruby.com, or better yet, call us at 855-255-RUBY. My guest today is Sean Askinosi. In 2006, Sean left a successful career as a criminal defense lawyer to start a bean-to-bar chocolate factory and never looked back. Askinosi Chocolate is a small-batch, award-winning chocolate factory in Springfield, Missouri, and was recently named by Forbes magazine as one of the 25 best small giants in America. His book, Meaningful Work, The Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling, and Feed Your Soul, Cohort written with his daughter Lauren was released late last year. Welcome, Sean. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Paul. Well, gosh, lots to talk about. Uh, you gave up this successful career as a, as a lawyer. Uh, why did you do that? That's a good one. Uh, my wife still asks me that question sometimes, <laughs> even though it's twelve years later. Uh, you know, the thing is, uh, for twenty years, I loved it. I loved law school. I wanted to be there. Wanted to uh, practice criminal law, and I was able to live that out and live my vocation. And then there came a time when I stopped loving it, and I could feel it emotionally, physically, spiritually, everything. And so I just, I could tell that it was time to go. And I, and, and then the real challenge was what to do. Cause I didn't have any hobbies. I didn't know how to do anything else uh, except cross examine people. And so, mm-hmm. um, there's not a lot of, um, horizontal job opportunities for people who have that skill. So that was it. You know, I just needed to get out. Yeah. And the, you were young enough that had, you had certainly another, at least few gears in you and wanted to do something different. Why chocolate? Chocolate, it wasn't, interestingly, it wasn't uh, this lifelong dream of, of mine to work with chocolate or anything like that. And because, as I mentioned, I didn't have any hobbies, I, I started to try to develop them. And the first one was grilling. So I bought a big green egg and then another one. And then I started making all kinds of stuff on that egg, everything you could imagine. Then I started baking. And then from baking to chocolate desserts, And then one day, 12 years ago, I was driving to a funeral of a distant relative and just by myself and had this kind of light bulb moment of, hey, what about just making chocolate from scratch, having zero idea that it came from a bean or that the beans were grown around the equator? No idea. And but within three months of that, I was in the Amazon. Uh, studying how farmers can influence the flavor of chocolate by how they harvest these cocoa beans. Meanwhile, still practicing law. And then I started this transition after I got back from the Amazon of winding down my law practice, buying a building, buying equipment, learning how to do this. And that was 12 years ago. So tell me a little bit about the business today. What does Askinosi Chocolate do? What do you produce? Kind of size and scope? How many employees? Sure. We have 17 full-time employees, and we are based in Springfield, Missouri. We're, as you said, a bean-to-bar chocolate factory, and we um, produce 
uh, it's about a one-to-one ratio between the quantity of cocoa beans and the quantity of finished chocolate. So it's about, oh, 35 to 40 metric tons of chocolate, um, which is all relative, you know, because the Mars plant uh, in Chicago that makes the fun size Snickers bar can do that in a shift. Um, so mm-hmm. all, all of this chocolate making stuff like any other manufacturing is, is, is relative, but <clears throat> Um, I source our beans for uh, myself, uh, direct trade um, with uh, farmers in the Amazon where I'll be next week and then in Ecuador where I'll also stop by um, and Tanzania and the Philippines. And we uh, buy these beans from farmers and I open my books to them, translate our financials into their language every year and then profit share with those farmers um, so they can see and understand the, the calculation by looking at our financial statements and how and how we do that. The other thing we do is um, we're very involved in our local community. Uh, we started a program at the beginning called Chocolate University to engage elementary, middle, and high school students in our business. And uh, we're in a very, um, can I say, revitalizing part of our community where there's a number of social services and candidly a lot of poverty in our neighborhood. I intentionally wanted to be in that, uh, in that spot. But so we, we have these programs and then this summer we'll take this high school, uh, group, um, to Tanzania as a part of chocolate university. The idea is really to inspire these kids that small business can be a force for good and that there's a world out there beyond Springfield, Missouri. So that's a little bit about what we do and, and, and who we are and at well, and we, we sell this chocolate all over the United States in about 800 stores, uh, most of them smaller specialty food stores, and then we sell to restaurants and bakeries in, um, you know, San Francisco, New York, L.A., places like that. And um, we we don't have distributors; it's all direct from us to stores and then online, and that's how we sell the chocolate. So you can uh, purchase it online as well. Yes, thank you. Askanosi.com. <laughs> there you go. Uh, hmm. Well, I'm I'm intrigued by this idea of the relationships that you have with these farmers and. Um, it's just so hard to, for me now to imagine this world of uh, criminal law, actually, and the, and this almost 180-degree transition. Um, I had a very short legal career myself and jumped mm-hmm. into business like you did, but not this this amazing switch. And, and uh, uh, so it sounds like more than anything, you're in the relationship business, the relationship with your community, the relationship with these growers. And, and I can't pretend to understand exactly how chocolate is made. Uh, but what is it about opening your books? Or why do you have these kind of what seem to be unique relationships with these uh, bean growers? The And I talk about this a lot in the book, and thanks for mentioning that in the intro. Um, and that is, what is vocation or calling? Is it possible for a business, regardless of size, to have a vocation and calling? And my answer is yes. And so for us, one of our vocations is farmers. And because I started the company and I I don't have any partners or investors or anything like that, my, my um, intention was to engage with farmers from the beginning because my grandparents were farmers. And I grew up on their farm in southwest Missouri, uh, spent spent a lot of time on their farm. And, and so that was a big, big influence in my life that I wanted to carry forward in my business. And so it was a very natural extension of that kind of honoring of my grandparents and who they were as people to work with farmers who grow cocoa beans. And so really that's the sort of beginning point of that vocation that we practice and live out um, now. And then 
Um, so opening my books to them seemed like a natural thing to do. I've been practicing open book management for 20 years. I did it as a lawyer in my law firm, and then it was natural to practice that in my chocolate factory. And then my idea was to sort of take this notion of open books upstream a notch to the farmer supplier. And so from the very beginning, I've opened my books to them and they get to see revenues and expenses and understand. And, you know, in some cases, like the farmer I'm visiting next week, I've literally been visiting him for almost 12 years every year. And so he knows, he knows, you know, what my financials look like. And he has a certain expectation of profit share and that's as it should be. So what this has done is really over time, this is not a one-time thing over year after year after year with these farmers, uh, the profit share has established an element of trust in this relationship. And it wasn't necessarily that way in the very, very beginning, because we have this sort of Americanized notion of, oh, let's profit share with our employees and that will have this sort of quid pro quo for whatever it is you're seeking, higher quality, higher revenue, whatever. But in this instance, I had to really detach myself from that kind of upfront expectation because these farmers are, they never met an American uh, in most cases, certainly never done business with an American. They think that all American companies operate the way we do, that they all profit share, they all open their books, which is fine. I'm happy to be that ambassador, but um so that's kind of how it works. You know, I just have to be, uh, I have to insert a degree of humility with respect to the expectations uh, that I had in the beginning and that I have now from uh, these these farmers who are kind and wonderful people. Oh, I bet. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned something in your book called reverse scale. What, what is that? The... The, the challenge, I believe, in today's culture, and it's not just in the United States, the challenge is we are constantly tempted by this allure of scale. And everyone has heard grow or die. And it's really conditioned uh, as, as a part of the extension and growth of capitalism, that it's dependent on um, constant growth and consumption. Our American economy is dependent on it. We're, we're regularly checking our health uh, vis-a-vis GDP. And of course, our companies um, are often dependent on growth and the consumption of the product that we happen to manufacture or the service that we provide. And so my, my, my hope and practice is that we can uh, push back and resist against that notion of grow uh, for growth's sake and or grow because we can. And so what I'm asking people to do is think, okay, <clears throat> Uh, you know, investors want us, you know, they ask us, will it scale? How fast will it scale? How many people can we deploy this to? Chambers of Commerce want to know it because they want more jobs in the community. Your family wants to know it because they think if you scale, then you're going to be rich and they're happy for you. But um, what what I'm saying is, is there some value in kind of turning that pyramid upside down and saying, does this idea that I am proposing um, have value because it impacts just a few people in my little company? Or can I say that this value, this idea has value because it only impacts me? And I believe the answer to that is yes. Why do this? Why would you want to resist growth? Well, one of the reasons is because I, I believe we need to have other metrics besides top line revenue growth or scale, uh, in terms of revenue to measure the success and health 
of our companies. And what, what, what I'm saying is, is that often what happens with entrepreneurs is they're drawn to a business. They're drawn to a thing. They start it because it's their heart's desire. And what happens over years is as they scale, they begin to lose the connection to the thing that drew them to the business in the first place because they're busy managing and delegating and writing checks and supervising. And before they know it, they, they're disconnected to the human scale that brought them there to begin with. So I'm saying, hey, let's think about this and, and, and ask ourselves, do we really need to do this or can we kind of resist that and stay tethered to the thing that brought us to there to begin with. And that can give us joy. And ultimately, ultimately it can really be, um, a, a place of transformation for us as entrepreneurs and owners and managers every day. Well, it's, uh, interesting. You're speaking to the choir a bit because you almost just defined what small giants is about in the small I giants know. community. And, uh, you're certainly living that you talked about the idea that there's other ways to measure impact. So can you give us a couple of examples of how you do that beyond the financials? One way for us is because we're, we're, we're involved in community development here locally, just in our town in Springfield, but we're also involved in community development in some of the origin countries, for example, Tanzania. So we want to measure, one of the measurements for us is how engaged are we in that community where the farmers live in that village? And for us right now, one of the things that we're in the midst of is a nutrition program for school kids. And so we, we, we monitor the, the height and weight and school attendance of these children that we're providing school lunch for in a very sustainable fashion. We're, gosh, we've been doing this for eight years in, in Tanzania and the Philippines. And our little 17 person company has funded over a million meals for these kids. And, and we've had great success in their school attendance and height and weight and, and having a role in bringing them out of, um, malnourishment and the, the positive benefits of that in the community. So that's, that's one thing. But the other thing that we just, uh, maybe this isn't, uh, as fun to talk about for some people, but we really measure, um, debt reduction. And, and, and so that is absolutely counter to, um, uh, much of our culture because we want to have debt in order to finance growth and scale. So we, we measure debt reduction. And we also, because we're financing out of operations, uh, financing any expansion out of operations, we very carefully measure and forecast cash flow. I'm, I am really maybe in some ways most proud of our ability to forecast cash flow over the last 11 years than many other things because it's necessary to do that. So we measure that. Um, we also uh, just last week implemented a group health insurance plan for our company. And I am, it's one of my proudest moments and that will become effective May 1st. And I'm so excited about that. I've been working on trying to have healthcare for our employees since I started. And that has nothing to do with top line growth, but everything to do with just a proud moment of being able to offer this opportunity for our employees. Uh, yeah, good for you. You know, you mentioned that you didn't, uh, or don't have outside investors, uh, in the company. One is that is that be from the standpoint of having tried and uh, nobody wanted to give you money like happened with me in the early years, or uh, is that by design? And number two, how has that impacted the ability to sort of control the culture that you're trying to build there? 
Well, the part B first, I would say it absolutely um, lends, I would say, a great ability for me to have influence over the over the culture because I don't have any outside investors or partners. And um, so it it has over the years given me an opportunity to both um, accelerate um, um, elements of the culture that I really want to um, accentuate. Um, and on the other hand, and I would say, especially in recent years, it's giving me, given me the great opportunity to decelerate my own personal desires as they relate to the company in order to, uh, grow, um, leaders within our little company so they can have influence over the things that are important to them. And I wouldn't have had that opportunity to decelerate if I was, uh, I, I might not have that opportunity, I should say, if I had investors and partners. And to the first part of your question, I don't have partners or investors by design because, thankfully, I was able to save money over my 20 years as a criminal defense lawyer. And I basically poured my life savings into this little business. And I just – I own the real estate that our little factory is on and our warehouse. Well, I should say, well, the bank owns it. So I did borrow for – real estate. But, um, so I just didn't, I, I knew I could put my savings in this and, um, it wasn't, I didn't try partners out on this at any time. I didn't seek any kind of investment like that. And, uh, and it's not that I don't, I, I enjoy uh, the collaborative effort and, you know, I, I, I certainly would, would be open to that if something came along that was, um, not necessarily to grow the company, but, you know, maybe to help pull a laboring oar uh, in the company. I'm 57, and I fly to these countries every year. And every time I go to Tanzania, which takes like 60 hours to get there, I I feel it in my bones. <laughs> um, so you know, someday when there's uh, some 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 opportunity that comes up like that, then I, I would certainly be open to it. So I'm not against partners, and I think it's great um, for people who make it work. But it just hasn't ever been something we've thought about. Well, I would just say keep doing what you're doing, and uh, uh, the the fact is, yeah, there's plenty of good partners and people like that that will throw money at you when you're having success. But uh, what I would venture to guess is that the kind of impact that you're having um, would be somehow diluted um, or at risk of dilution um, if you didn't have the complete control to do things the way that you want it. And so not a lot of us get the opportunity to do that nowadays. And congratulations on what you've done so far. You know, it took a lot of courage for you to leave your successful career to start this business, uh, to learn what it meant to lead other people. And now you're spending your um, your career growing, not only the people within your company, but um, all of those relationships that you have in all of these other countries. Uh, so where did all this come from? Let me just take you back to kind of where you, when you grew up, Sean, and uh, tell me about your parents. What were these early influences that really uh, shaped who you are today? I would say the earliest and most dramatic influence in my life was um, when my dad died of lung cancer when I was 14. So he got sick, I guess, when I was tw between 12 and 13 years old. And he was a lawyer too, and uh, my hero. And, and, uh, uh, this was back before we had hospice. 
and my mom, there were things that, you know, she of course helped my dad in, in all ways, but she couldn't get, bring herself to give him pain shots. So for about a year and a half, I gave my dad Demerol shots sometimes five or six times a day because of the pain. And I was 13, uh, 14 years old and I was happy to help, but that really, I think had a big impact on me. And, and, and there's no question that who I am today was born of that sorrow in my life and that broken heart because I didn't think he was going to die, even though the cancer was going everywhere in his body. And I write about this in the book, but there was this prayer group that came over that would lay hands on him and speak in tongues. And it kind of freaked me out and they would get loud and say he was going to be healed. And the guy, the leader of the group said, don't ever talk with your dad about death, because if you do, it's going to be a sign of doubt and he won't be healed. So I never did. Or when I tried to do that, or when my dad tried to, I pushed him away and said, you know, don't say that, Dad. Don't, don't. We can't talk that way. And then when he died, I was with him. <clears throat> and it was uh, the most desperate moment of my life, begging God not to let him die. And I just out loud was just begging him to let him live. And he died. And so, you know, fast forward 25 years later, I had to come to terms with that grief in my life, um, and the way I did that was the, what we talked about in the very beginning. So I knew that I had to quit law, and you said that I was courageous for doing that. I wasn't courageous. It was killing me. And so I, I, it, it was my vocation, then it wasn't, and it was, it was painful. And so I had to do something else. And so I don't, I mean, I appreciate you saying that, but that's not what it was. And so I would say what happened to me, I read this book Tuesdays with Maury mm. and, and that changed my life. I mean, literally, I, I think God was talking to me through that book. And, um, and so I started a grief center for children in our area who've experienced the death of a parent or sibling. I co-founded it, um, with somebody and I'm still very involved in that place. 18 years later, uh, we serve kids all over Southwest Missouri for free and, and, and their families. And so, you know, that was the big, the biggest influence in my life. And what I've tried to do, especially in the last 10 to 12 years, 15 years is to, <clears throat> is to, is to recognize that I had and have a broken heart and that I don't need to fix it. I need to let that broken heartedness express itself in compassion, kindness as best I can. I'm not, you know, I'm not a perfect person at this stuff. But that's what I try to do as an entrepreneur and as a business person, as a human. And that, that, that's, I would say, the biggest influence that happened and continues to weave its way into my life. Well, just to recognize the impact that that's had your entire life and that's something that just never goes away and you have used that to fuel your passion and uh, I know you're being humble to say it didn't take courage but uh, there's so many people listening that upon self-reflection would say that their careers are killing them and uh, they're not happy doing what they're doing and yet so many people stick around. And don't have uh, that courage to to make a move and change, and uh, and so that that's what I'm talking about, you know, and, and mm -hmm. the fact that you've been able to turn that into something that's uh, where the impact that you're making is far beyond your wildest dreams, and it's really not about the money. It's not, you know, you've talked about. Uh, 
the this reverse scale and and deceleration of uh, um, of the company in order to make an impact and grow your leaders. And uh, we are uh, under such pressure to grow. And it, we, look, we all want to grow our companies. We all want to have mm-hmm. great impact. But uh, to do it where you really feel that purpose, it took, um, I think, the, of course, the experience with your dad passing away. Um, I, I, I lost a sibling. I lost my brother um, at mm-hmm. 43 years old from a brain tumor. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we were partners as well. And, you know, that'll le- never leave me either. And, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, I can see how much that shaped you. What about um, early jobs or school? Anything there that from the standpoint of your, your leadership potential? My first job was in commercial real estate in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and my boss, um, and so I was commission only, and I was right out of college. It was a very competitive environment in Dallas-Fort Worth at that time, and still is to this day, I'm sure. But that, um, my my boss, he had a great influence on me. He was, um, he expected just perfection. And I'm glad that he did. And, and so that had a big influence on me. I would also say that my law school professors expected a lot out of me and I loved, um, trying to live up to their expectation in class and uh, with my grades because I did not do well in undergrad and I don't even really know how I got into law school. Um, but I almost didn't, but so Mm -hmm. those, I would say those were early influences, you know, just these people in my life, my boss and my law school professors who really expected me to perform and to do well. And I, I wanted to, um, to live up to that. And, and that was, that was something that, I mean, I, I still think about those influences to this day. Mm. Can you think of a, an unexpected learning from an unexpected source? I think that my grandparents who lived on the same farm for over 60 years, went to the same church for that amount of time, over that amount of time, they basically were born and died within a three mile radius. And, um, they were very kind, patient, loving people who were not highly educated and they worked really hard. And you would think, oh yeah, well, a lot of people have grandparents like that. And people grew up on farms in rural America and, and sure. Yeah. Well, the unexpected learning from them is, um, something that my spiritual director at, uh, Assumption Abbey calls the impulse of instability. And one of the things that they taught me by, by just their longevity of place. You know, they stayed on their farm. They, they, they're farming, not a big farm, 200 acre farm. It was their vocation. It's what, and so yes, I moved from one career to the next, but I also really have a great admiration and value for this notion of stability. And I think in our culture today, one of the things that we, we, because it's so easy to have instability in our marriages and our relationships and our friendships and our companies that we, we, you know, I think that we'll, we'll hopefully return to this kind of, um, treasuring of stability. And my grandparents taught me that. And I, I still look to them for, um, inspiration so that I won't have what my spiritual director calls an impulse of instability. Mm. Tell me about this, uh, this monastery. Uh, you're a family brother at a Trappist monastery. I mean, how did that come about? My, the weekend that my father died, 
um, he was on a men's retreat from our Episcopal church at that monastery about two hours from my house. His last night of his life was there. And uh, it didn't really hold a lot of meaning for me uh, for many, many years. And then, as I said, kind of when things started to change for me in my 40s, I wanted to go there. So I started going there about 17 years ago on a retreat. And then I started going on more retreats there and meeting with um, who is now my spiritual director, Father Cyprian, who I write about in the book. And he's I've been um, talking with him, with him and walking with him and trying to learn from him for 17 years. And he's been a monk since 1952. And about four years ago, I, I um, decided to take the um, make the effort to become a family brother. And that just means really, so I'm not a monk. I mean, what it just means that I, I live with the monks when I'm there. I follow their schedule of waking up at three in the morning for their first prayer service at three 30. And I work with them and, and, um, and live behind the cloister of the monastery. And, um, but the idea is, are there components of that contemplative life that I can include in my life in the world. In other words, is there a way that I can bring the monastery with me and keep it in my heart during the day? And that's a challenge, but it's one that I accept and that I aspire to be able to be better at. And one of the things that they've really taught me and is that I, I aspire to a life of being inserted by doing as opposed to a life of doing inserted by being. Mm. And I, yes, I'm an entrepreneur. Yes, I'm motivated and I'm determined and I want to succeed and do well. But I, I really believe that those things are possible. And at the same time, living a life of being first, I think it's possible. And I, that's my aspiration. Well, I'm headed out next week to my first ever silent retreat and one of our awesome. the, yeah, one of the members of the Small Giants community, Rob Dubay, who was on my podcast, has written his book called Do Nothing. And uh, and I've gotten into meditation over the last couple of years, but I got to tell you, I'm a little freaked out about this silent retreat. Yeah, where uh, is it? It's in uh, it's in Colorado, and uh-huh. uh, in a beautiful area. Uh, and uh, uh, so I'm, I'm actually quite looking forward to it. But I think that um, that getting into that contemplative state that you said is something that uh, many of us could use more of. And I include myself in that. And once you uh, kind of accept that the integration of, of that part of our lives, it really can be uh, quite special. So uh, I, uh, I'm less worried about being silent because I can easily be quiet. I'm more worried about not having my phone for four days. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a, is it a four day silent retreat? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Um, yeah. Um, so it's yeah. a. I'm excited a, for you. It's a good start. Well, you know, you you talk about in your book something called the rule of life. What is that? In order to become a family brother, uh, the uh, monastery um, wanted me the the monks wanted me to write what's called a rule of life, which is loosely based on the rule of Benedict. And the rule of Benedict is a document that uh, Saint Benedict um, wrote in around 500 AD in order to manage monasteries. 
And this rule, it's, it's it, the shorthand uh, version, is, it's just called the rule. The rule has governed monasteries around the world now, Benedictine um, monasteries for 1,500 years. So these, you know, Trappist beers that, you know, we read about and hopefully can taste, those, the monasteries that produce those are governed by the rule of Benedict. And so, um, and the rule is based on scripture. And uh, so, some of these are very practical rules. Some are more um, kind of vague. But um, so the challenge was for me to write a rule of life for my life. In other words, what does my daily life look like, my weekly, my monthly, uh, and my annual sort of checkups that I can um, that I can write down that the that the abbot will approve that. Um, is something that I am held accountable to and that I can try to live my life, as I said a moment ago, a life of being inserted by doing. And anyone can write a rule of life. You don't have to be a family brother. You don't even have to be a Christian. You can be anything. And it's a, it's, it's, this is not new, um, but this is just an idea of, can I write down the life that I want to lead and live? And uh, what, what, what practices can I incorporate in my life in order to adhere to it? That's all it is. Well, it's something that so many of us uh, don't do. And I was with someone in a in a business recently, helping this company articulate their vision going forward. And one of the people said, uh, "You know, all my life I've never actually written down a goal." And mm. uh, and so you just realize that that's that's a far stretch from what you just talked about. But it's it's uh, if we all just stop for a moment and imagine what that life is, um, we can do that. And if it's something that we write down, it's it's pretty fascinating to go back and review and sometimes laugh at what we wrote <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. um, after that. So as you think about the company Askenazi Chocolate today, uh, Sean, what do you think are are your biggest challenges uh, going forward or current challenges? Well, now that we're almost 12 years in, um, I think one of the one of the challenges is, at least for me as an entrepreneur, is to continually uh, be mindful of the um, shiny objects in my peripheral vision that um, attract me to, oh, why don't I do this? Why don't I do that? Let's start this. Let's start that. And so I think a challenge, and, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs who have been in their business for a decade will understand what I'm saying, and that is to remain focused. Yes, um, be creative, but not so creative that you take your eye off of the focus of your company. And um, so that, I, I would say for me, is personally a challenge. Um, and and I would say that's maybe the, one of the main things. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, a challenge for us because we we finance any expansion that we have out of operations, um, and we don't take on very much debt at all. That's a challenge. So cash flow when when I pay farmers in advance of getting cocoa beans, sometimes six months in advance, and I do have done this for years. I mean, I'm, I'm just basically parking money with them that I could use for daily stuff. So that's hard to do. I have to be very, very careful. And, and yes, I'm profitable and have been for a long time. But, but when, but when we do, when we're doing all of these things, you know, feeding a thousand kids a day, um, getting health insurance for our employees, 
doing all of these things, we have to really, really watch cash flow. So that's a, that, that I would say also is a big challenge for us um, to just really watch. And what's the hardest or most humbling decision you've had to make as a leader? Well, you know, people, the, the, one of the, one of the most uh, toughest, one of the toughest decisions I think that, that comes to mind when you ask that question is we, we've, the way we worked this school lunch program in Tanzania is the farmers there also grow rice, and it's a beautiful gourmet rice that um, they would put on the container in one kilo bags, and then I would sell it online. I'm still selling it online or in my storefront here. And you, let's say, Paul, that you came in or you ordered a kilo of rice, you would give me $16.50, and then I would, you would have the rice, and I would put all that money back at the school for them to source local food for the kids. Well, one year the the rice wouldn't fit on the container and it was a metric ton of rice on my container, which held 14 tons of cocoa beans. It wouldn't fit. Everything wouldn't fit. So I had to decide, what am I going to do? Am I going to put a metric ton of rice on here of which I will get zero revenue for, you know, that I can use for the company? Or am I going to put a metric ton of cocoa beans here that I can, you know, leverage into significant revenue for mm-hmm. my company. What, what am I going to do? Cause it would, it wouldn't fit anymore. I couldn't squeeze it in. And so, uh, that was a tough decision. And I ended up leaving a metric ton of cocoa beans behind in Tanzania and I gave it back to the farmers and let them sell it again. So they got double revenue on it and I got the, the rice here. And, and so that was, that was a really challenging decision. And I would say that, you know, I made the decision fairly quickly and consulted other people in the company, but this is a, I think a good example of the inseparability of the community work that we do and the chocolate that we make. They are inseparable. They are bound up like a macrame wall hanging. I mean, it's for your younger listeners, they probably don't know what macrame is, but, but we, it's, it's, it's all just wound up together. There isn't like a philanthropy or charitable giving department in my company. It's all meshed mixed together. Mm. And this decision of leaving beans behind is an example of just, you know, doing that so that we could do what we said we were going to do, which is feed these kids. Yeah, they are one and the same. And uh, you just gave me a flashback to the macrame belt I had in high school. So, <laughs> there you uh, go. Uh, yeah. Was it red, white, and blue? Uh, no, no. Oh, it, was, okay. it was kind of a beige, but um, I can oh, tell yeah. we're in the same age range. Um, so, uh, Sean, as you continue your leadership journey, is there a particular aspect of leadership you feel like you could still improve on? Well, I, I, yes. And, and I think one of the things that I mentioned earlier is the deceleration of my own, you know, influences in order to, um, cultivate leadership in my company. And so I, I, I believe that I still need and will always need help with that no matter what I'm doing, because I tend to, you know, cut a pretty wide swath in my day. And I tend to, you know, be opinionated about things. And so I, I want, um, and need help in pushing down some of my own things, um, in a way that I guess, uh, that would help me become more humble in my daily practice of 
working with the people that I work with here at the factory. So I would say that anything that I can do and in a way to practice a greater degree of humility as a leader is something that I need to, to improve on and continually practice. Now, what do you think about the what's going on in the legal profession today? And I've had the opportunity recently to be a guest on a couple different uh, podcasts in the legal profession where they seem to be catching on slowly to this idea of culture and and even changing the way law firms operate, et cetera. And you came out of that world. And so what do your old law school friends or people that you practice with think about is like, uh, man, this guy's just off the edge doing this stuff now. Or are you able to take some of these lessons and, and apply them to that profession that you spent so many years in? It's interesting. I do get a lot of emails from 42-year-old burned-out lawyers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember in the beginning when I was, you know, telling my colleagues at the courthouse that I was there's there's a little coffee shop just for lawyers at the bottom of the courthouse and um it's always just full of people waiting to get for their next court appearance or whatever. And I remember telling my colleagues in that little coffee shop that I was going to do this. And I would say 98% of them thought that I'd lost my mind. Um, they couldn't understand it. They just could not understand why I would, would do that. And, um, but today many lawyers that I talk with here in my town, uh, appreciate what I did and often sort of begrudgingly sort of shaking their head in disbelief. will say, you know, I wish, that I could do something like that. And I, I, I see a lot of unhappy lawyers out there and I feel bad about that. And, but candidly, Paul, I don't have a lot of influence. I haven't really had the opportunity to influence uh, just maybe, maybe my best friends, you know, from law school, my mm-hmm. two or three, my study uh, group partners, I've been able I still keep up with them. But um, I don't have the chance. I, I don't to really speak to lawyers or be on lawyer podcasts. I mean, that's a great idea. Um, and, but I'm, I'm grateful that this idea that you mentioned, this culture change is happening because I don't believe that the legal profession would have been sustainable without it. I mean, especially the big law firms that are, uh, well, I mean, we have a glut of lawyers on the market and that's not new, but, and so there need, there, there really needs to be ways in which, um, they can find meaningful work that lasts for decades, as opposed to just pushing these profit centers of associates in, in order to just, you know, churn them up and spit them out. And, um, well, the younger generation I think is demanding this. So it's not just in manufacturing, but as you say, it's in the legal profession as well. And that's a good thing. I'm glad that they're demanding Me it. Too. And, uh, yeah. uh, and I don't think it necessarily means that you have to jump ship. And it's uh, it's the fact, again, that you can have this impact while you're in the business that you're in. Um, I think it'll take a while in certain industries, including law, but uh, I'm sure lots more people will enjoy hearing your story and how you've been able to do that. Um, if you were talking to one of those younger people, People, Sean, um, just starting out in their career, what kind of advice would you give them? I just last week was speaking to a little university in Macon, Georgia, and I, I, I talk to students all the time. And I tell students every chance I get, 
I'm begging you to take accounting and finance classes. Please, I don't care if you're going to be in a rock band, if you're going to be a potter, or if you're going to open a company or work for a company, please, please take accounting and finance. I took zero accounting and finance classes. And here I was, you know, cross-examining, you know, FBI forensic accountants and that was hard when I didn't understand what I was even asking. So I, I tell young people, please take this, please take these courses to have a really good understanding of financial literacy. And, you know, often they don't want to hear that from me because they're really into some highly specialized marketing field in school, you know, and, and, <clears throat> but I think sort of the nuts and bolts of finance is, is really, really important. And, and I would say a corollary to that, when I talk to people who are thinking of jumping out into um, starting a new company, I really encourage them to build an advisory group, uh, not a board of directors, you know, necessarily nothing that fancy, just, you know, three or four people who are in various places in their industry, maybe someone who's been there for a long time, someone who's just started out, and to, to give them honest, honest feedback on their idea, their plan, uh, to pressure test it so that it is a reasonable, achievable, feasible um, business idea that will have cash flow. I see so many people starting these little businesses. I see it especially in the food world because that's what I'm in. And, you know, they're in five or six years and they've depleted all of their savings. They can't take on any more debt or equity people. And they're, they're, they are, um, you know, they've, they've lost a lot of their joy and I feel bad about that. And so I think one of the ways to avoid that is to buy really, just really, really in the beginning, looking at it from every angle, not to deflate your dream, but to make sure that it's something that is achievable. That's great advice uh, and something we really don't hear enough about um, for people starting out. I know even well into my business, I couldn't read a financial statement myself to save my life. And um, and you're really making decisions that are not in the best interest of the company or yourself until you do that. And I don't think it's any coincidence that you're um, in the backyard of you know the father of open book management, Jack Stack. Right. Uh, so great influence there. Um, right. Well, um, Sean, this has been great. Uh, just so much uh, inspiration coming from your story and the contribution that you're making. And uh, you know, I, I've I've. I feel like I have my foot on a, on a brake a little bit, this whole idea of deceleration and, and how important that is. Uh, but let me just uh, finish up with these quick hit questions, the association game where you just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, can you name a, a leader that you look up to? Uh, if they can be dead, I would say Thomas Merton. Mm, okay. Um, a great book that influenced your leadership style. I know you mentioned one already. Yeah, Tuesdays with Maury would be, I mean, it changed my life more than probably any other book. And then I would say um, one that I love is a book called Becoming Human by Jean Vanier. He's a Catholic theologian and still alive. And he, he started the L'Arche um, communities in France, people who have disabilities living in community with those who don't. And so I, I, I really appreciate his leadership style. Ah, wonderful. What about a favorite all-time movie? Uh, this is probably about as inconsistent with all of the things that I've said for the last hour, but I'd say Apocalypse Now. Oh. <laughs> I love Martin Sheen in that movie. And so anyway, yeah. yeah. Incredible. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, I don't know how much time you have, but uh, do you have a favorite TV series to binge watch? 
I watch a lot of trash TV. I used to be ashamed of it. Um, and when I answer this question, um, this is completely inconsistent with my last answer, but I would say Gilmore girls. I love that show. Ah. My daughter, my daughter turned me on to that. It's like an oxytocin release watching yeah. that show. Yeah. I love it. I got stuck on that a little bit too. And my daughter was watching it and your daughter, uh, co-wrote the book with you. Yes, she did. She's uh-huh. and she, and she works with me and, and, uh, and has for gosh, since she was 16 years old. Ah, that's fantastic. And lastly, what's something about you that many people don't know? When I went to college in Japan, which I did for a year, I was a pro wrestler there, and uh, my wrestling name was Shooting Sean Springfield, <laughs> and uh, I, I it, of course, it was all choreographed, and and I was, you know, somewhat popular there in Tokyo, and people would come and watch me, and and uh, I had a lot of fun doing it, and hurt my back doing it, but um, but I had a great time, and a lot of people don't know that about me. Shooting Sean Springfield, I love that. That's it. Yeah. Um, well, let me let me tell you a couple of my takeaways uh, just from our discussion, Sean. It's a uh, there's a long list here, um, and I feel humbled myself. Um, you know, the idea that a business can have a vocation. Um, uh, clearly, the the idea of uh, transparency, um, open book management, etc., that you do not only in your company but with your partners, your suppliers, the farmers, the relationships that you have. You know, not a lot of people, I would say, do that, I'm sure, in your industry or any industry for that matter. And really, all you're talking about is developing trust. It's not the mechanism. It's not about the financials. It's about the the trusted relationships you generate by being open with people. Um, you talked about uh, reverse scale. And, and and the fact is, can can we have impact? Can we have value without fast, fast growth? And, and you certainly can. And that's what you guys are doing. Um, the the deceleration um, again pushing back against this idea that we always have to be pushing and pushing and pushing or going faster um, or expanding that the the choice that you made to at sometimes decelerate even in your own career in this company has allowed you to give time back to the people in your company to grow them and grow their careers and I got to believe that that makes you feel uh, great um, change. Um, is something that uh, does take courage. That that we're when we're in a career, if we're honest with ourselves, um, are we at a point in our life? I think just the fact that you saved enough money to be able to at least make the jump. You know, many people economically are in in the position to do that, um, and didn't mean you didn't take a lot of risks because you did, and you still are. Um, but you were able to get out of um, a profession that wasn't driving. Um, you to have a fulfilled life. And, um, and I think you are today. Um, the lessons you learned from the time you were providing pain medication to your dad and, and uh, what that meant for you and, and the fact that you, you'll always have a broken heart, but you have turned that into um, impacting many people beyond your dad. Um, and, uh, and then honoring kind of what your grandparents did, this whole idea of stability. We all, I think, search for stability. Uh, honestly, I think when people give millennials sometimes a bad name for job hopping and all of that, I, I think, you know what, good for them because they're, they are looking for making the world a better place. They are looking for meaning and, uh, and hopefully when they find it, they will stick with it and they will be loyal, um, over a period of time, um, 
you know, incorporating a contemplative life is that is just realizing that there's room for all of this, and and you're not making a choice of uh, one or the other. That you should write down the life you want to live. Um, that's that rule of life that uh, we should write it down. Just stop. I talk to people about the fact that we think about a mission, vision, values of a company, and we put a lot of uh, discipline beyond uh, to that, but we don't really do it individually. And I take people to that same exercise to say, what's my purpose? How do I make the world a better place? What are those core values that no matter what changes in my life will never change? And if I put myself five, 10 years from now, you know, what is life like? It's just a fascinating exercise to go through. Uh, The fact that you left that metric ton of cocoa on that, on that pallet or that um, container there, um, uh, it meant that um, you were just making a choice that had so much symbolism beyond the fact that that supplier could sell it twice. Um, but that story could be told over and over again about the choices that you have made in your life. And ultimately, the the idea that uh, the advice you gave to young people, um, very basic, very practical, which is Understand about finances, understand about accounting, understand that uh, as you get into life and into business, making sure that uh, you're able to practically do it because that's why we go out of business is because we don't have that education. We don't manage cash flow. Uh, You're another example of someone rarely who has been able to start a business and uh, and do it yourself and, and be able to uh, continue to grow through your own cash flow um, to invest operationally. And I absolutely believe and was able to do it in my core business as well that um, it allows us to control our own destiny and our that means we can create the kind of culture that we want to create. Uh, so, uh, Sean, congratulations on everything you've done so far. Um, I wish I was joining you on your trip to uh, meet the cocoa farmers and um, and. Uh, uh, and uh, it, it, I'm going to think about that on my uh, silent retreat next week. Um, and uh, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you being on our podcast and sharing your story with all of our listeners. So thank you much for being well, with thank, me today. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. I, it's an honor to talk with you. And I've been looking forward to it for a long time. And I only have one request, and that is if you can think of it. If you wouldn't mind emailing me when you get back from your silent retreat, I would love to hear even just a sentence or two as to how it impacted you and how you enjoyed it. I'd I'd love to hear that. And I really look forward to seeing you in person in uh, a few weeks. That's right. Well, you are going to be speaking at the Small Giant Summit in May. We can't wait to have you share your story with a a large group of people there. And I absolutely promise you, I will email you as soon as I get back to my phone and can, uh, (laughs) can connect with the world again. Uh, So uh, to all of you, thank you for joining me on this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. Until next time. 